Probably that mic right over there. Yeah, there you go. Very good. There's a lot that goes into a worship service, and um, there are a lot of people that prepare for worship services, and the worship services at this church and this place, um, especially this worship service, because we get to take communion together at the end, they all speak towards one, one thing. Really, they, only, they all speak towards one person, and that person is Jesus, and so I want to I wanna get to communion as quickly as possible. Um, we're going to cover Psalm 52 and 53. And, um, and try to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. Amen? Amen. We'll see how the Lord is speaking to us through the Old Testament and how the Old Testament, even in the Psalms, they were look for, looking forward already to a beautiful and wonderful Savior. If you would, turn with me to Psalm 52 and 53. And while you turn there, a little bit of, a little bit of preface. The Psalms are classified as wisdom literature and are organized in the middle of the Old Testament with the likes of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. The overarching theme of which in the Psalms is the contrast between the people that we would understand as the wicked and the people that are God's people that we would understand as the righteous. So that's God's people versus God's enemies. Psalm 1 sets the tone. Uh, you can go back online on our website and listen to that sermon from so many weeks ago now. But Psalm 1 sets the tone for the entire collection describing the righteous man and the wicked man. And there are several spots throughout the Psalms where the arrangement of certain Psalms together next to one another is meant to highlight and illustrate further this, uh, the juxtaposition, the difference between the righteous man and the wicked man and how the righteous man behaves and reacts and how the wicked man behaves and reacts we have that here between Psalm 51, which I preached a couple weeks ago, and then the juxtaposed. So you have David in Psalm 51, and that's juxtaposed against a guy named Doag the Edomite in 52 and 53. Doag the Edomite, not so savory of a character as we're about to learn here together. 52 and 53 are meant to illustrate the other side of the coin. David, we got a picture into how a righteous man reacts to sin in Psalm 51, and now we get to see how an unrighteous, a wicked person reacts to their sin and, and what makes those two different. This time we had Psalm 51 coming out of 2 Samuel last time. The context was David and Bathsheba. Psalm 52 is placed, we know from the heading, uh, it says in the, to the choir master, a mascal, and if, you, if you've been following along with the psalm sermon, we know a mascal is meant to be a teaching psalm, so the arranger of the psalms put these here so that we could learn a lesson. Okay, this is a mascal of David when Doag the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. This comes out of 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. I'm not going to read all that, but I will paraphrase for you what took place historically speaking that inspired David to kind of write. It's 52 is kind of an open letter to Doag the Edomite. At this time, David is, uh, he's in exile. He's, he's on the run. He's running away from Saul because Saul, um, he wants to make David shish kebabs constantly. He, he wants to throw a spear and pin him to the wall because he, while David is his son-in-law, and for all intents and purposes, he should be this beloved heir. He's, he is the, the giant slayer. He's, he's a man after God's own heart. Uh, but Saul had some obvious, full, some obvious moral short-givings, and he, he was not 
Uh, he was God's man, and then he did some stuff that uh, showed that he was not going to be a faithful king and that his progeny would not be faithful kings. And so God then sends out Samuel the prophet to go and anoint David to be the next king. And well, that doesn't make Saul very happy. Saul would prefer that he gets to be king and that his sons would be the kings after him, but it's not what God has willed. So there's this kind of awkward period of time when Saul is still alive, but David is going to become the king. And so Saul kind of like, he does some things to kind of act like he's embracing David and that he's kind of going along with it, but he, in his heart, it's as, it's as cold and black as stone. And he is not happy about the fact that David is going to be the king. And so in one of those periods when he's especially not happy, happy David is hiding out. He's, he's a fugitive. And he comes, he's on the run, and he runs towards a city called Nob, okay? And in this city of Nob, there are, there are some priests, and the head priest here, there's a guy named Ahimelech. This is a younger David than Psalm 51. This is earlier in the chronology, and he's on the run once again. David has been anointed to be king. Um, God has rejected Saul. Saul is not happy. And this unexpecting priest named Ahimelech, he's really just kind of an in, you know, innocent guy, David comes along and says, hey, I'm on a mission from the king, and I need some supplies. You got any supplies? And he's like, well, I don't really have, we don't have very much food here, but we do have this special bread that's reserved for our religious ceremonies. It's the, the bread of meeting, okay? And he says, well, you, but you're, you're God's man. You can have that. It's okay. We'll just give it. David's like, good. So he takes the bread, and he eats it, hands it out to his men, and they eat it. And then he says, hey, you got any weapons? And Ahimelech says, well, no, we're priests. We're, we, we we're not an army. We're not an armory. But we do have the big giant sword that you lopped off Goliath's head with, and you can have that sword. And David's like, that's a great sword. I'll take it. Okay? So he takes the sword, and it just so happens that there's a guy named Doeg the Edomite that's witnessing this all take place. And he uh, sees an opportunity for himself. And he's not loyal to either side. Understand, you have to understand some of the history of the Edomites. The Edomites were descended from Esau, which was the older brother that Jacob tricked. Okay? Jacob, Israel, Edom, Esau. Okay? So you can see from the very beginning there's been rivalry here. This man is steeped in racism and rivalry against Israelites. He hates them for just breathing. Okay? These are not his people. And so he sees an opportunity here to maybe get to kill two birds with one stone, have the opportunity to do some harm to some Israelites, mess up the whole, you know, like really get the fire stoked between Saul and David because that works out poorly for God's people, and also get in good with the guy who's in charge. So he scurries on back to Saul and says, hey, you know your man Ahimelech and Nob and all those priests? I just watched him give David supplies so that you can run away from you and escape your hand. And of course, what's Saul do? He gets furious, right? He said, we're going to take care of this. I want everybody to know you don't supply David. He's my enemy. I'm the guy in charge. I'm the king. I'm the king. He's getting desperate. And so he then goes to Ahimelech and he says, Stand before me so you can be judged for what you have done. And Himelech's like, what? He doesn't, Himelech has no idea what's going on between David and Saul. For all, like I said, for all intents and purposes, this is God's man. This is the king's right-hand man, his son-in-law. And he's like, he told me he was on a mission from you. Saul doesn't care. 
He's just seeing red at this point. And he turns to his men that are around him, his army that's around him, and he says to them, kill him. Get him. Kill them all. Kill the priest. Kill him. And all the Israelites are like, whoa, buddy. Uh-uh. Those are unarmed priests. Those are God's men. Uh-uh. I, I'll do things for you, King Saul, but that's a line I cannot cross. But guess who was standing amongst them? Doeg, the Edomite. So what's he do? He seizes the opportunity to kill Israelites because he hates them, to get in good with the king. And it says Doeg not only puts to, puts to death all the priests of Nob, all the priests of Nob. These are innocent men, unarmed, mind you, because the only sword that they had was Goliath's, and they gave that to David. These are not trained fighters. These are, these are men of the cloth. And he kills them all. And not only that, he goes the extra mile, and he execution-style kills men, women, children, and livestock, the entire city of Nob. He puts it to the sword, kills them all. There's one man that gets away, and this, this, this son of Ahimelech manages to escape with his life, and he comes and he meets David, and he tells David what took place, and of course David is grieved by what took place. He feels responsible partially for what took place, and he is absolutely furious towards Doeg, the Edomite. And so you could say Psalm 52 is David's reaction to this news. It's an open letter to Doag, and 53 is almost an exact quote of Psalm 14 that the editor of the Psalms puts in place to kind of drive home the point of what's being displayed in 52. Remember, 51 was to show how a, a righteous man is confronted with sin and what he does to react to it. 52 is an open letter to a man who is not repentant and not righteous in his sin, and then 14 is kind of the footnote. It's almost like you could put between 52 and 53. Remember when Jesus would say to the Pharisees, have you not read? And he would use the, the, the supporting structure of the scriptures to emphasize what he's teaching currently. So 52 takes place, and it's almost you could almost write in the words, have you not read? Psalm 53. So it undergirds and supports the weight of the argument in 52. So without further ado, let me just read both of those psalms together, and then we're going to break them down. We have four quick questions I want to ask of the psalms, and we're going to get to Jesus. He's in here, I promise. Here it is. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? This is David to Doeg. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, you and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction." But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. 
I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. And then 53, Doag, have you not read? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no, none that does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror. Where there is no terror... For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. And then verse 6, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. If you go back to Psalm 1, there's an illustration in the scriptures right there that it establishes the righteous man as a tree. Remember this? He who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of living water. He bears fruit in and out of season. His roots go deep. He has an ever-abundant supply of fresh, clean water that we know as the Word, okay? And then juxtaposed against an unrighteous person who is like a dried-up bush with no root system, not close to water, that, that, that barren tree, so to speak. So that's the imagery you need to get into your head, as we're going to exposit these two psalms, that's the imagery we need to have in our head. So there's four questions we're going to ask, we're going to answer from the psalms today. Think of the tree. What is the root of wickedness? Question one. Question two. What is the fruit of wickedness? Okay. Question three. What is the fruit of righteousness? Question four. What is the root of of righteousness. Okay, so we're going to do root, fruit, fruit, root. Say that five times fast, right? So question one, what is the root of wickedness? What is the root of Doag the Edomite? What's at bottom here? 52, one through three. Let's read that again. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? And this is said mockingly by David, O mighty man. He's calling him tough guy. Why do you boast in evil, you slayer of unarmed priests? You tough guy. Doeg the Edomite, you had the opportunity. If you really didn't like me and you really thought you could do harm to me, you had the opportunity while I stood there with Ahimelech the priest to call me out and fight. And what did you do? You ran back to Saul, and then you went and killed a bunch of unarmed, untrained priests. Oh, mighty man you are. Tough guy you are. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. Say, wow, we have a pause. And then 53, verse 1. So this is this evil man he's talking about. He loves lying. He's deceitful. He loves evil. He loves, he loves all these things. His heart just craves them. He's a schemer. 
What's at the root of all this behavior? 53 verse 1. The fool says in his, well, the fool says in his heart what? There is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the answer to our first question, what is the root of wickedness? It is atheism. Atheism. Now, atheism is a, a, a nice little buzzword we as Christians like to use to talk about all them people out there, right? But the root of wickedness, the root of sin is atheism. Sin grows best in the soil of atheism. What do I mean by that? Atheism defined means a lack of belief in theos, God. A lack of belief in God. Doag doesn't believe that he will answer for his sins. He doesn't believe in the God of the Israelites. He probably has deities that are his own deities, but it's idolatry. They're false deities. And above all, he doesn't think that he will pay for his sins. He doesn't believe that God will judge him. So he has no problem doing all these things. And absolutely no problem brushing it off when David writes Psalm 52 to him. And this isn't just true of of Doeg the Edomite. Let's read on a little bit further in 53 and hear what this mascal, according to David, has to teach all of us. You ready? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have What's that word? All fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So this is a teaching that's applied to you. Yes, Doag the Edomite, but we have to understand that we have a little bit of Doag the Edomite in all of us. How do we know this? How do we know this? If we go to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, Oh, yeah, by the way, put your, when we get there, keep like a finger in Psalms and a finger in, in Romans because we're going to go back and forth there a little bit. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened. They cannot see. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, here it is, there's the most important part, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature themselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And where did this all start? Well, if you flip all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, you don't have to. But if you look in Genesis, and you see Adam and Eve, the moment where Satan has them eating out of the palm of his hand, he says these words to them, surely you won't die if you eat the fruit. Surely God doesn't mean what he says. Surely you won't die. You won't be judged for your sin. All that stuff that God said, nah, nah. He doesn't really mean it. Atheism. That's atheism. It's a lack of belief in the God of the Bible. Now, we, 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 we like to dress things up. We have different forms of atheism in our culture, but it's atheism nonetheless. Less. This is the soil of wickedness. And I, there's, lots, there's lots of examples we could use. The atheism of, oh, you could go to the prosperity gospel route. The atheism of, uh, if I love God, he'll give me what I want. That's not the God of the Bible. The atheism of, uh, um, oh, you know, God loves Americans more than everybody else. That's atheism. The atheism of, oh, God doesn't really care if I have a sex addiction. addiction. The atheism of, well, I know I have a problem with gossip, but he's not going to judge me for that. You see what I'm saying? Any deviation from the God of the Bible is atheism. It's the soil of atheism, and your sin and Doeg's sin grow rich, grow strong in that soil. And it says all, all of us have this tendency. God looks down from heaven, all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the fruit of this wickedness? It's question two. Back to Psalm 52. Doag goes on like he does because he foolishly believes that there is no God. 52 verses 4 through 7. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. And the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. What is the fruit of wickedness? It is judgment. 
That is reality. That is the God of the Bible. We all need to put our big boy pants on today, our big girl pants on today, and realize that the wages of sin is death. Judgment is coming. This is reality. God, just because he's patient right now and gives lots of opportunity for us to repent and follow after him, lots of opportunity to return to the fold and return to the overseer of our soul, does not mean that it's not coming. Judgment day is coming, and it's laughable to David and to the righteous people mentioned in Psalm 52 how much out of touch with reality Doeg the Edomite is. It's laughable to them. It says, The righteous shall see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See this man. As sure as the sun rises in the east, so sin will be punished by God. This is reality. Your sin, hear me, your sin will be punished by God. Period. It will be punished by God. One way or the other. We're going to get there. But one way or the other, it will be punished by God. Look at 53 verses 4 and 5 that supports this. 53, now over to 53. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon God? There they are. Now he's talking, giving you the scene of the, of the day of judgment. There they are, where there is no terror, where there should be no terror before God. They are scattered, and they are destroyed. The bones of him who encamps against you, this Doag the Edomite type, is put to shame, for God has rejected them. It's coming. Judgment is coming. Romans 2 Flip over. Let's look at it. Romans 2, where the Apostle Paul is outlining this for us in the New Testament way. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Romans 6.23, first part, 6.23a. For the wages of sin is what? Death. We're not to the butt yet. The wages of sin is death. Third question, what is the fruit of righteousness? So now we know the root of sin and wickedness. We know the fruit of sin and wickedness. The the root would be atheism, a lack of belief in the God of the Bible. The fruit is destruction and death, judgment by an almighty God. Now we get to see the fruit of The righteous, the fruit of the righteous, and then we'll get to the root of the righteous. Six through nine, what is the fruit of the righteous? What makes them different from Doeg the Edomite on the surface of things? 52, six through nine. The righteous shall see and fear. The verbs are important here. The righteous shall what? See and fear. And then going down to eight, David's talking about himself. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust. So we have see, fear, trust, and the steadfast love of God forever, ever. And I will thank you because you have done it. I will wait for your name. 
Weight is five. So we have see, fear, trust, thank, and wait. The fruit of righteousness is a clear perception of sin. Seeing. The righteous see and fear. That's a super important sentence. They see what? They see their own sin. They see, they perceive clearly what the situation is where Doeg the Edomite does not. He does not see that God is real, that God is in front of him, that God is going to judge him. They see clearly of their sin. In the fifth grade, I had a math teacher that once accused me. She accused me of cheating on my tests because in class, I would get really good grades on my tests. I would, you know, I, I, liked, I liked math then. I don't, you know, that because it was easy. It was like fifth grade math. I liked math then, so I was doing all right, and I, I was acing all my tests, but when she'd call on me in class, you know, she, this is back in the day, they had the overhead projector, and she'd be writing out the things, and she'd say, you know, uh, Kurt, stand up, tell me what you know, such and such times such and such is. And I'd get it desperately wrong every single time. And she kept me after class one day, and she, she, she apologized later on, but she somewhat like kind of was like being like, I know you're cheating because you're not doing well when we're in class, but all, somehow you're doing fine on those tests. So like she like set me off in the corner with my folder, folders up so I couldn't look, you know, like the old school, set your folders up, create the cubicle, in your desk so you can't cheat and all that. And I still was acing them. And she's like, you know, Kurt, and so somewhat sarcastically, she said, well, maybe you just need to get your eyes checked. And I said, okay. So I went home and told my mom, hey, mom, I think maybe, because I didn't get sarcasm. I was a fifth grader. I said, well, I need to go get my eyes checked. Uh, and so I did, and I, I had terrible vision. Could not perceive, could not see what the problem was to get the problem right. And I'll never forget the day I came back to class and I could, I, you know, then I was just popping them off in class when she got it. And that teacher came up and said, I'm so sorry. Please don't, you know, don't tell your mom. I'm sorry. You know, but the point of the story is if you can't see what the problem is, you can't get it right. You can't fix it. Without the lenses of the Spirit of God, descending upon a person to see clearly that there is a God, he is real, he cares about your sin, and then he's going to punishment. That's the second verb. So see, fear. They see and they fear. What do they fear? They fear coming judgment. They are afraid of this almighty God that is going to punish them from their sin. Oh, that every one of us in this room, that every man, woman, and child would do those first two things clearly because the rest of it flows out from there. Seeing clearly the problem and being afraid that God is going to punish them for it. Now, there's all kinds of problems with the, you know, the, we, hellfire and brimstone preaching got a bad rap, okay, because it was, it was kind of com combined with like emotional manipulation and stuff. But one thing those guys got right was, by golly, they told people the truth. They told them who God was and what he was going to do to them if they didn't do the next thing, which was trust. Trust. 52. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. 
just to take him at his word. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. They trust in the steadfast love of God. Has God not proven himself to us trustworthy? Amen? This is, this is, my, this is my plug for why you should read the Bible in a year. This is my plug for you don't have to have super, like, great lights on, smoke and lasers type of quiet times to be, for it to be important for you to have a quiet time and read the Bible cover to cover. If not every year, if you're not a quick reader, every two years or three years or five years. But it's important that you read the Bible in its entirety so that you can learn that God has been trustworthy to his people and he is going to be trustworthy to you now and he is going to be trustworthy to you later. He is worthy of your trust. Even when it doesn't seem like it. Even when it looks like you really need that extra $1,000 on your tax return. And you really could use it. But the Bible says, do not be deceptive. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. When that woman looks so beautiful and she's flirting with you, man, Trust him that the wife of your youth is better. Trust him. God will punish. He will. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Trust him. They then return praise to God. So they see, they fear, they trust, they praise this is the fruit of righteousness for his faithfulness. That's why we gather. That's why we gather, is to return praise to God. And then to finally, do the fifth thing, to wait upon the deliverance of God himself until that day of completion when we don't have to wrestle with these things any longer, either through death or through the second coming of Christ. Amen? So the fruit of righteousness, God's people, they have done this they have done this from the time of David and before, and they do it, you do it as a, as a Christian even now. You see, you fear, you trust, you praise, you wait. Write that down. See, fear, trust, praise, wait. That's the fruit of righteousness within God's people, straight out of Psalm 52. They see sin, they fear judgment, they trust God. They praise God's mercy. They trust God's forgiveness. They praise God's mercy, and they wait for the consummation of their salvation. Romans 6.23. Let's read a little bit more of Romans 6.23. We're getting there. Coming to the punchline. Is it up there? Give me 623 up there, guys, so we can all look at it together. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Stop. Stop short there. I know it's important. It's coming, though. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's the fruit. This is the fruit we're talking about here. 
These five things take place. These verbs, see, fear, trust, praise, wait. God gives us eternal life. Now, answering the question, what is the root of righteousness? The root of righteousness. 53, Psalm 53, verse 6. Psalm 53, verse 6. There it is. There he is. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. David, David was ready for Jesus. King David wanted Jesus. He didn't even know what his name was going to be. He didn't know what he'd look like or what form he would take. But he was looking forward to this man, this one who would come and vindicate God's people. And he knew, he knew, he trusted and he waited and he knew that God would do it. Keep that verse up there. Just stare at it for a second. Oh, that salvation would come for Israel. It would come out of Zion. Zion's another name for what? Jerusalem. Hear Paul's take on it from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but... We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, what happened? Christ died for the ungodly. For the one will scarcely, perhaps, scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one dare even die. But God shows his love for us in this, that famous verse, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The difference between David and Doeg actually has much less to do with David and Doeg and has everything to do with the salvation who has come out of Zion. The salvation whose name is the name above all names, and his name is Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions, torn for our iniquity, his punishment that should have been our punishment. Remember I said that our sin will be punished? Sins will be punished before God. Our punishment brought us peace through his punishment. To those whom God gives eyes to see and ears to hear, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Through seeing, fearing, trusting, praising, 
and waiting. Brothers and sisters, we're about to take communion together, and it is the ultimate reminder of what Christ has done to justify the wicked and save sinners. It's the ultimate reminder of that. It's the prime opportunity for you to see your sin, to fear the judgment that God should rightly give you, to trust that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross made atonement for your sin, to give praise to him for such a merciful and gracious and beautiful act, and then to reaffirm yourself in the faith as you wait all the more, as you wait on the Lord Jesus to make you whole in the afterlife. I think what's most fitting, considering what communion is, and what Pastor Matt brought back to the forefront about the teaching of communion, that we just take a few moments and we just do that. We just take a few moments to ourselves to do those, to do those things, to see, to fear, to trust, to praise, to wait. Take time amongst ourselves. Now, I want to I say this too before, we, before I turn you loose there because I'm just going to, at the end, I'm just going to pray and we'll move right into communion. It's not a bad thing to pass. Okay? It's not. It's okay. It's okay to pass. Now, but in the same breath, I'm also going to say this. If you feel the need to pass, perhaps you should feel the need to seek counsel. Perhaps if you're not a Christian and you don't know these things, it's time to come and talk to a leader, to myself or Pastor Matt, to lead you towards this path of righteousness, to see and to fear God, to motivate you in that way. If you are a Christian and you decide to pass, you don't have to do things alone. You don't have to wrestle alone. That's why we have the church. That's why we have each other. You have, a brother, you have brothers and sisters in the church that love you very much, and their judgment is not upon you because they're in the same exact boat. We're all sinners, and we need Jesus' grace together. So if you do pass, consider, maybe you would consider today coming and seeking counsel as well, right? No judgment, but we're here to love you, to help guide you towards Jesus, and help you consider the things of the cross. Let's take this time now, just silent reflection, just a few moments, to prepare our hearts to take communion together.